Hello everyone, this is Jeffrey Kerr. On May 4th, 2020, I released the episode of my News of the Month series where actor, playwright, director, theater critic, and historian Ron Fassler joined me to discuss a few entertainment news stories I had selected to talk about. Originally, I planned to end it with a discussion on director Peter H. Hunt, who recently passed away at the age of 81 from complications of Parkinson's disease on April 26th. However, since Ron and I had so much to talk about, I decided to save that conversation for this episode. What you're about to hear are stories we've both covered for different publications about the musical 1776. I wrote an entire feature that was published on Broadway World on July 4th, 2016, which was America's 240th birthday. You can find a link to it in the episode notes. Meanwhile, Ron wrote an entire chapter for his novel Up in the Cheap Seats, a historical memoir of Broadway, which chronicles his years as a teenage theatergoer and includes interviews with more than 100 Broadway theater artists. Without further ado, here's the conversation. And I also mourned a, a dear friend who died this week, Peter Hunt, who was a wonderful theater and film and television director. He died at 81, the, the same age as Brian Dennehy. A bit of trivia, because uh, I know you love the Tony Awards, but he is to this day the youngest person to ever receive the best director of a musical Tony. Uh, he directed the original 1776 back in 1969, and he was 29 years old. Well, yeah, just, well, months before he turned 30. That's right. It was an extraordinary way that he got that part, because uh, 1776 was kind of a joke. I mean, who wants to see a musical about the signing of the Declaration of Independence? They approached every director, every director, even directors who were wrong for it, like Bob Fosse, Gower Champion, were asked, would you direct this show? And of course they said, no, it's not a show we do. But nobody, you know, said, gee, it's a great show. You got to find the right director. Everybody like was puzzled by how to handle it. And uh, the producer uh, was a friend of Jerome Robbins, who was the legendary director choreographer of his day. And he begged Jerome Robbins. He said, uh, you know, he was the first one he asked. And Robbins turned him down. And he went back to him, you know, 30 people later and said, please, I mean, if you can't do it, isn't there anybody you can recommend? And Robin said, you know, I do know this guy who I, because I saw a thing he directed a few months ago and was really good, and but I don't even know his name. Can you believe it? The producer did some digging, found out it was this guy named Peter Hunt, and that is how Peter Hunt got the job. He, and Jerome Robbins didn't even know him. Just that recommendation alone. He directed something Jerome Robbins liked. And that was enough. And Peter Hunt had been up until that time a great Broadway lighting designer. Only 29, he'd done a bunch of Broadway uh, shows. He just had a great eye and he knew a great deal about theater because he'd been working at the famed uh, Williamstown Theater Festival uh, practically since its inception in the late 50s. Uh, when he was a teenager, he started as an electrician apprentice. He really was a master craftsman. And I got to know him when I started researching my book, because I did a whole chapter on 1776, because uh, it was one of my favorite shows uh, from that time when I was going to the theater regularly as a teenager. That's what my book is about. It's all about my life going to the theater uh, for four years, way back in the late 60s, early 70s, when I could see, well, I saw 200 Broadway shows in four years. 
I wrote a whole feature on 1776 that was published on Broadway World on July 4th, 2016, which was America's 240th birthday. And I, I did mention a lot of the stuff you just did. Yes. Uh, and I was so lucky because uh, I also spoke with Ken Howard, who was the original Tom Jefferson, and he's passed. And in fact, uh, I started writing that book about seven years ago. And it, over 20, I think 25 people out of the 100 people who I spoke with are now gone. Because so many of them were, you know, in their 70s, 80s, even 90s. Uh, but God love him. William Daniels is uh, 93. And, uh, the original John Adams, he is still with us and, and, and going strong. Well, yeah, in fact, uh, something I mentioned in my feature was that Peter Hunt did start out his career as a lighting designer while also directing some experimental theater on the side. And yeah, the show Jerome Robbins saw from Peter Hunt that he directed was Booth, about the Booth family that was written by Hunt's classmate at Yale, Austin Pendleton, and produced by Richard Rogers. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yes, he, uh, Peter lit a great many shows for Richard Rogers when Richard Rogers was producing a series of uh, revivals of great musicals uh, at the State Theater at Lincoln Center, the big theater mostly for dance. That's where Peter lit uh, the Andy Get Your Gun revival with Ethel Merman and The King and I and Oklahoma and all those shows. He, he did them all. Oh, yes. In fact, uh, this next story, well, is something I learned from one of the audio commentaries he recorded for the Blu-ray release of the movie of 1776. He mentioned that one night while he was lighting a production of Noel Coward's Sweet Potato, some kid came up to Peter outside the theater one night and said, Stuart Ostro wants you to direct his new musical. He wants to know who your agent is. And Peter, at that point, he never had an agent as a lighting designer, so he used the name Deborah Coleman, who he knew as Austin Pendleton's agent. And after the kid left. Hunts ran inside the stage door and dialed up the phone. He got a hold of Deborah Coleman's office telling her that he really needed an agent right now. And she responded, oh, honey, I'm so busy with my own clients. There's no possible way. And she was about to hang up when Hunt said, oh, my gosh, I'm going to get caught in a lie. And Coleman responded, what are you talking about? Hunt then explained to her that he had just told Stuart Ostro's office that she was his agent because he was offered a Broadway musical. And Coleman ended the call by saying, I'll get right back to you. It's an absolutely true story. Yeah. Deborah Coleman was one of those great old lady agents. She was born in 1900. So she was uh, 69 at that time. So sure, she wasn't looking for new clients. You know what I mean? She was his agent until she died. You know. And when Peter later met with composer Sherman Edwards, book writer Peter Stone, and producer Stuart Ostro to discuss 1776, Ostro admitted that he had no idea how to audition a director, so he suggested to Hunt that both he and Stone should go out to East Hampton during the weekend to cut the first act down to size. After they got back into town, Hunt and Stone read the first act out loud in Ostro's office. Ostro then suggested to both of them to go out next weekend to cut down the second act. And when they brought it again, Ostro said, Thanks, we'll get back to you. And Hunt then went home to his apartment, feeling he'd just been had. So he poured himself several scotches before laying down on the living room floor, figuring out what he was going to do next with his life. And when the phone finally rang, it was Stuart Oster saying, We're at Sardis, come on up and join us. We're celebrating the fact that you're our director. Hunt then hung up the phone after responding with, I'm too drunk, I can't move, I'll see you tomorrow. Yeah, it, the whole thing was almost a, a fantasy. And in fact, you know, Peter cast most of 1776 out of all those wonderful actors that he'd been working with for uh, more than a dozen years at Williamstown. So it was filled with people. Uh, Ken Howard was one of them, you know, who he had worked with at Williamstown. 
What was funny was that Ken Howard had only just made his Broadway debut uh, like a month earlier when they started the audition process in a musical called Promises, Promises, which is the musical version of The Apartment, the famous Billy Wilder movie. Howard had a very tiny part. He just played Fran Kubelik's uh, brother, who is a Polish cab driver, and he comes in and socks Jerry Orbach in the jaw at the end of the play. Stuart Ostrow, the producer of 1776, said, this is who you want to play Thomas Jefferson, one of the founders of our country, this Polish taxi driver? <laughs> <laughs> Peter was like, Stuart, what's the wrong with you? He's an actor. And Stuart Ostrow would not give in every time they brought Ken in. And Peter said, oh, my God, it was so obvious. We couldn't cast that part. And every time Ken came in, he was just better and better. And Stuart Ostrow just wouldn't hear of it. So finally, Peter and Ken, you know, got together and made a plan that Ken was going to come in and do a Shakespearean monologue. And that would show him that he was a real actor. Ken did a very funny thing. He walked into the theater like you do. And, you know, actors, when they're doing a musical audition, uh, give their sheet music to the pianist, right? So Ken came in with his book of Shakespeare and gave it to the pianist as a joke. And then he launched into a Shakespearean monologue. And finally, Stuart Ostrow turned to Peter Hunt and went, you're right. The kid's an actor. You know, we can cast him. The success of 1776 meant a great deal to Peter as, you know, after the Broadway show became the success that it was, Hollywood producer Jack Warner went to business with Columbia Pictures to produce a film adaptation. A press conference took place at the Columbia Building in New York City, and Peter Stone had invited Peter Hunt to it, thinking it would be fun. And when the press asked Warner who was going to direct the film, he responded with, why the same guy who did it on Broadway, of course. And Hunt originally thought Warner was just joking before meeting his office, where it turns out that Hunt really was going to direct the film. Isn't that amazing to find out you're going to direct your first movie, you're 30 years old, and you find out at the press conference that you weren't even invited to, you just showed up because you thought it would be fun, right? And you end up finding out from Jack Warner himself, one of the Warner brothers, that you're going to direct the movie. Peter's life was filled with things like that and things that would never happen today. These were guys like Jack Warner was the kind of producer, you know, he did things by the seat of his pants. He had gut feelings about things, you know? He just said, yeah, the guy who did it on Broadway, he didn't even know his name. Again, like Jerome Robbins, get the kid who directed that booth thing. Stories like this, just, they tickle me so because you could say they're just fantasy, but they're not, they really happened. It's like, it, it just adds the luster of the storybook aspect of a life in show business. It can still happen. I mean, crazy things happen all the time to people. You know, they, they can never know what they're getting themselves into. You do a guest shot on a TV show and you're not even supposed to be, you know, on the next episode. And suddenly, because everybody likes you, you know, you're the, the lead. That's what happened to Henry Winkler on uh, Happy Days. Fonzie was just a guy in the pilot. You know, they figured they'd figure out a way to work him into the series. They had no idea he was going to take over the show. Some could say the same thing about Urkel and Family Matters. Sure. Yeah. It's always an evolving process. You know, it's never, here's the script, let's shoot it or let's do it. You have these factors. They're happy accidents because of the casting of an actor so strong. Danny DeVito in Taxi. They never conceived that character, you know, to be this little man like that. He was supposed to be this big, gruff, burly, you know, awful guy that everybody was afraid of, you know, like a Brian Dennehy type. And mm -hmm. instead, Danny DeVito came into the audition because the casting director was clever and thought, you know, what if we go this way? In fact, at his audition, it's a famous story. He walked in and he figured, how am I going to get this part, right? How am I going to show them that I can play this guy? So he looked at them all before he started reading and he went, 
who the hell wrote this shit? <laughs> <laughs> and immediately made them laugh. And they said, okay, this guy's got guts. This is who we need to play this part. Well, I know prior to the movie of 1776, Jack Warner was often notorious for when he produced a film adaptation of a Broadway musical. His first choice was to not use anyone involved with the Broadway show. Like he was the one held most responsible for not going with Julie Andrews for My Fair Lady and instead went with Audrey Hepburn. But with 1776, he thought this time he was going to do it right. I think that they did entertain the idea of a few names, you know. In fact, Peter Hunt really didn't want to use Howard De Silva because Howard had really misbehaved during that Broadway production and made Peter's life kind of a hell, even though he was wonderful in the part. And uh, this very famous agent called up Peter and said, listen, Howard really wants to, to have lunch with you. He'll pay for the lunch. He'll pay for the lunch. But he really wants to convince you that he'll be a good boy. They had lunch and, and Howard said, listen, I, I, I really was a pain in the ass, but I can do this and I have to do this and I'll, I'll be a pussycat, I promise you. And they shook on it. And then Peter said he was a delight, an absolute total delight. He's wonderful. And thank goodness we have that performance on film, you know, that they didn't go with some name actor. You know? Well, yeah, especially since Howard De Silva didn't get to be on the original Broadway cast recording because he was in the hospital at that point. So his standby, Rex Everhart, who people may or may not know the name, but he was actually the voice of Maurice in the Disney animated film Beauty and the Beast. He went on for Ben Franklin while Howard De Silva was in the hospital, and he ended up playing the role when they recorded the cast album. Now, you do know why Howard De Silva was in the hospital, right? Do you know what sent him to the hospital? Oh, yeah, heart attack. Yes, but that's not what they said in the press. The press, they said Howard De Silva has pneumonia. But what actually happened was Howard had a heart attack three days before opening night. And his doctor said, that's it, you're out of the show. And De Silva said, to hell with that. This is the role of my career. I'm opening on Broadway. And they had doctors standing by. He did a Thursday night, a Friday night, one on Saturday afternoon, one on Saturday night, opening night on Sunday night. And there was an ambulance waiting outside the theater, and they took him to the hospital. And that is a true story. Yes. Talk about the show must go on, huh? Especially as we saw in a couple of years back with Andy Carl and Groundhog Day, where he tore his ACL very late into previews, yet was able to return on opening night. I mean, there are some actors that just, they're tenacious, and they believe strongly that they can get through anything. you know. And then there are some actors, they get a slight tickle in their throat, and they call in sick. I'll tell you my favorite story about that, because, you know, there used to be a much greater discipline involved. But then again, a lot of Broadway actors, you know, didn't have to do so much. In the very old days, there was a singing chorus, a dancing chorus. You know, the singers, dancers, they have to also act. They have to do everything. And so, sure, it's tougher to do eight a week than it was back then. But not so for Mary Martin and Ethel Merman and Robert Preston. These people did, just didn't miss shows. But when Harvey Firestein was the titular head of the hairspray company on Broadway, he said to all of them, I hope you're not going to be the types of actors who call in sick a lot. You know, let's really try and be that unit that sticks together and let's do this show. And what he did was he hung up everybody's headshot backstage. And if you missed a show, your headshot came down. And by the end of the time when Harvey had been in the show for over a year, only Harvey's picture and one other actor remained on the wall. Mm -hmm. The only two that never missed a performance out of an entire company of about 30 people. 
And now, speaking of Howard DeSilvo being a pain in the ass, when the doozy lane number was cut out of town, Howard DeSilvo was so angry about it that he was going to quit the show, and Stuart Ostro had quickly hired Rex Everhart to take over, and one day in between shows, Howard DeSilvo was talking to Alfred Drake at a restaurant. DeSilvo went on for 20 minutes complaining about how terrible the show was, how awful Peter Hunt was, and when he ran out of steam, Alfred Drake told him that, you know, Howard, when we did Oklahoma, you were one of the dumbest people I ever met, and you still are. This is the best show you've ever been in, and this is the best you've ever been. And De Silva then said that his agent and lawyer were on their way to meet with Stuart Ostro to get him out. And Drake then said, Howard, run. Run down there and stop them, which he did. So the creative team kept Howard De Silva as Ben Franklin with Rex Everhart as his standby. Yes, and Rex Everhart was like insurance in case Howard ever pulled that again. They would just have a guy ready to go on a minute's notice. Because sometimes, you know, you've got some leverage, you know, if you're going to quit and there's nobody to take your place, you know, and you got the show all up and running. And then it turned out to be a blessing in disguise because who knew Howard would have a heart attack on basically opening night? Because, you know, from the time the play opened until Howard came back was about six weeks. And that's why Mm -hmm. Rex is on the album. They could have postponed held off doing the album until Howard came back. But the play was such a runaway overnight success because nobody expected it to be a hit. Nobody. The New York Times published uh, like a humor piece the week before that was sort of making fun of it, going, gee, a musical about the Declaration of Independence. What's next? Heavens to Betsy? A musical about Betsy Ross making the flag? You know, it's it's not even funny. But that's what they did a week before the show in the New York Times. Imagine you're the producer and you put up all that money and the New York Times is mocking your show uh, before you even had your first preview. But they they had the last laugh, right? They won the Tony over uh, Hair and Promises, Promises and Zorba. It was the surprise winner. Well, yeah. Imagine if they made a joke back in the day about, gee, a rap musical about Alexander Hamilton. Give me a break. Exactly right. Yeah, so I guess to end this discussion on Peter Hunt, he, of course, became one of the very few people to have directed the exact same musical on both stage and screen with 1776. And he also happened to have been uncle to actress Helen Hunt. Yep. Yeah. So he, he leaves a long legacy. He worked with some amazing people and he'll be missed. It's up to people like us to keep his memory going. Right, Jeffrey? Oh, yes. In fact, we should also add that I read that he actually also directed the pilot for the TV show Baywatch. Yes, he did. He did. I didn't even know that. I was looking that up the other day. You yes. wouldn't expect that, would you? The man who directed 1776 directed the pilot of Baywatch. Yeah, or even a filmed stage play called Give Him Hell, Harry, which earned James Whitmore an Oscar nomination. Yes, and that came out of the relationship he had with James Whitmore because they did many plays together at Williamstown. Somebody else directed it on the stage, but when they decided to film it, Whitmore said to his producers, let's get Peter Hunt to direct this on film. Yeah, and I believe that was his only other feature film that was released theatrically. Yeah. He got to work in television as a result of going out to Hollywood, and he started to make a very good living. When you become one of those guys that makes pilots, you become a a real commodity, you know? Well, yes. I know in recent years he had also directed a lot of stage readings of classic films in Hollywood. Yeah, he loved to keep his hand in. He definitely had uh, many illnesses he was fighting over the years, which was which was terrible. I mean, I met him about, well, seven years ago, and, you know, he was just coming off of a terrible, life-threatening situation that he got through by the skin of his teeth. I never knew him in, in the best of health, but he was an incredibly robust, like, when he'd tell a story, I mean, 
you know, his face would turn red and the veins would pop and his voice would boom. And he was just so energetic, you know, and he was, you know, just he'd hold on to his cane, you know, and I, I loved him for that, you know. But I, I imagine it was extraordinary when he was a younger man. Uh, somebody wrote me uh, about uh, being in the room with him when he was at Williamstown in those days. He would walk in the room with a kind of energy. You were just uplifted. You know, you were maybe sitting reading a newspaper. But the moment he would walk in the room, you'd put the newspaper down. You know, it was time to go to work. You know, mm -hmm. I love people like that. Yeah. Now I kind of wish I met him. That's something else. When you read the obit of somebody, you hear about what they were like and you get a sense of it. It just makes you think, wow, I wish I had a cup of coffee with that guy. You know, I wish I had a lunch with that guy. You know, that's why I'm grateful that uh, my book gave me that opportunity, that excuse, you know, to be able to sit across from Mike Nichols for an hour or Harold Prince or, you know, my true idols, you know, and, and they're no longer with us now. So I'm even more grateful for the time that I was able to spend with them. You know, yeah, and luckily for me, so far, all the interviews I've conducted are with people who are still alive, like, let's say, uh, Karen Ziamba, Daisy Egan, John Rubinstein, Rebecca Luker, etc. Yeah, sure. By the very nature of a book, to reminisce about productions from 50 years ago was going to send me to uh, a lot of people who are, were getting on in years, you know? That just about does it for the news of this month. Thank you, Ron, for joining me today. Thank you, Jeffrey. It was a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, and for those who'd like to keep up with your career, where can they find you on the internet? If you just put Ron Fassler into Google, you'll find me. I have my own website, and you'll learn more about my book, Up in the Cheap Seats. And I write and blog, and mostly about theater history. I call it Theater Yesterday and Today, so you can catch up with me there. To everyone listening, you can find my work on various websites, such as my own care reviews. You can also find my work on goldderby.com and Broadway World. So again, that just about does it for this month. You can expect new episodes for News of the Month uh, the first Monday of every month. And I'll be back on June 1st to discuss any bit of entertainment news that I found interesting and or important. So thank you again for joining me today, Ron. It was a pleasure. Goodbye now. If you like what you've heard here, please subscribe to wherever you get this podcast. Feel free to rate and or review this show on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to find more content from me, please visit my website, which is www.carereviews.net. You can also find it on Twitter at CareReviews and me at Jeffrey Care. Thanks for listening, and I will see you all later.